This is Quiet Revolutionaries, a podcast about a little-known group of British activists in the mid-20th century, and how they helped to shape the idea of equal partnership and relationships. I'm Dr Sharon Thompson, a law lecturer at Cardiff University, where over the course of several years I decided to take a different look at how law came to be as we know it. I delved into the stories of a group of women and men known as the Married Women's Association. Coming back to the Married Women's Association, I think you know, he felt deeply that women needed a, a better lot. Over eight episodes, I'll explore through a series of interviews and archival research why it's so important to know the Married Women's Association's story. You'll hear actors bring the words of this group to life. I'm not asking for protection. I'm asking for legal rights in hard cash. You'll hear directly from family and friends of these activists. Yes, thanks to my mother-in-law, you're fine. Eunice, it affected everybody's life. And you'll hear from other historians of the women's movement. But we should be careful as historians because just because an organisation isn't perhaps as noisy as another group or as visible as another group, it doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't actually doing as equally important work. This is episode one. The story in this first episode explores what happened next after women over 30 got the vote in 1918. This is important because many assume, incorrectly, that the women's movement became dormant until the birth of second wave feminism in the 1960s, and it most certainly did not. And we will see how and why the Married Women's Association was formed at the brink of the Second World War. The idea to establish the Married Women's Association in the late 1930s came from Dorothy Evans, a former suffragette with strongly held feminist views. She'd been imprisoned a number of times, including for a foiled attempt to bomb Lisburn Castle in the north of Ireland in 1913. She took part in hunger and thirst strikes and suffered force feeding too. But though she was a lesbian and personally against marriage, she still saw reforming marriage as part of a wider feminist cause. She was able to see the bigger picture. What was this bigger picture? Well, in short, the law was letting women down. And marriage in particular was holding back women's emancipation. If you were a woman in the 1920s and 30s, you'd be paid much less than men. Not only were most of the lowest paid jobs traditionally women's jobs, you weren't paid what a man was paid because of something called the family wage. You'd be told you couldn't legitimately be paid what a man was paid because you weren't expected to be the head of the household, the patriarch responsible for financially supporting the family. In practice, then, as a married woman, your husband would get a family wage to cover the whole family, but you would have no right whatsoever to this family wage. In many cases, you wouldn't even have known what your husband earned. Then there was also the marriage bar which meant that if you worked in jobs like banking or the civil service, you'd be expected to resign when you got married. To avoid this, some women even got married in secret so that they wouldn't lose their jobs. These aren't isolated examples of wives being unequal to their husbands. There's a bigger problem here. When combined, all of these factors ensured that in marriage and often divorce, men were economically stronger, which in turn meant that they had all of the power. Let's get back to suffragette Dorothy Evans. In the 1920s and 30s, she was a leading member of the Six Point Group, 
an organisation that boasted many prominent members of the suffrage movement, such as its founder, Lady Rhonda. Once equal franchise had been achieved in 1928, these suffragettes were continuing the struggle for women's emancipation in the six-point group. The group was structured a little bit like the Women's Equality Party is today. It had a list of six points it wanted to address. Back in the 1920s, this included equal pay in the civil service, equal guardianship of children, and so on. By the 1930s, six-point group members had become very angry about the status of women and their lack of legal rights that persisted despite universal suffrage. And as their meeting records show, the rights of married women in particular became an important point of discussion. To deal with this issue, Dorothy Evans set about establishing a subgroup of the six-point group, which was to become the Married Women's Association. The group would lift the veil between public and private worlds in a way that was much more radical and controversial than many would think today. Marriage was something that happened behind closed doors. To most, it was unthinkable for the law to get involved in the rights of married women because this would mean interfering in the private world of the home. But not for feminist Dorothy Evans. She could see this was the way to women's emancipation, both inside and outside the home. But who was going to lead this new group? After all, the six-point group was concerned with a broad range of concerns for women outside marriage. So, to lead this group, then Evans picked a little-known, Australian-born, opinionated housewife by the name of Juanita Francis. Francis had moved to London from Adelaide in the late 1920s and had various jobs as a nurse, as well as the more colourful jobs of burlesque dancer and conjurer's assistant. But then she had to give up work to get married in 1934. When the 1935 general election was imminent, Juanita Francis didn't know who to vote for. She asked her husband, a banker named Gerald Schlesinger. I said, who should we vote for? Because I didn't know much about politics. And he said, the Conservatives. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to swallow that. I wanted to know why. Oh, he said, they've got the best economic system. Francis needed a better reason than that. In the end, she said, I didn't vote at all because my husband was unconvincing and he couldn't explain anything. Unimpressed with her husband's advice and keen to learn more about politics, Frances sought her own political education. She was first exposed to the women's movement at a meeting of the British Commonwealth League, an international feminist organisation that former suffragette Flora Drummond had asked her to attend. I was most grateful to her for sending me to this conference because I could see that I, I could possibly have lived a lifetime and never really understood what the women's movement was all about. She recalled, sitting with my mouth open, thinking, hell, how have I missed this all my life? I came bang into the feminist movement and it amazed me. I joined the Fawcett Library and I had time and got all the books I could on the suffragette movement and that rather pointed the way. You get an idea and you just go out and get it. And you see, I was inspired by the way that that was the thing. Get the vote at all costs. And of course, the vote is the stepping stone to all other reform. After making connections in the feminist world, Juanita Francis met Dorothy Evans of the Six Point Group at a meeting in Geneva. As part of a group called Equal Rights International, Francis was trying to get members of the League of Nations, a forerunner to the UN, to adopt an equal rights treaty that would address laws discriminating against women internationally, including equal pay. This meeting was a turning point for Francis. 
She was invited to join the executive committee of the Six Point Group and to lead their group for housewives, which became the Married Women's Association. On the 15th of November 1937, it was noted in the group's minutes that Francis was to become chairman, a term historically applied to both women and men. By this time, the Second World War was imminent and Frances had two children to care for. Yet she went from strength to strength in her new leadership role. As for her husband, they divorced in 1948. He was old-fashioned and conservative and I was too much for him. Now, in my dotage, I'm sorry for him. I think I ill-treated him intellectually. However, Frances didn't like being under the control of the six-point group. This was, in part, because of a clash of personalities. The influence of some members over Francis's work caused friction, to the point that Francis made a decision. I thought, well, that won't do. So I made an appointment to see Dorothy Evans and said, I've drawn up a constitution and I think I would like a separate organisation. The six-point grip committee, less surprised than Francis expected them to be, accepted the plans. In 1938, the Married Women's Association became an independent organisation. What a cheek, Frances said when explaining her actions later in an interview. Here I am, a complete novice, and these experienced feminists, I've taken it completely out of their hands. This was probably for the best. Though Dorothy Evans could see the importance of improving the welfare of married women, Many other prominent six-point group members were much less enthusiastic about this cause. Comments had been made in various meetings about women who were stupid enough to get married. And so the Married Women's Association would only be able to effectively develop and expand its work among married women if it had a membership that would not be hostile to marriage, seeking instead to reform its unequal structures through law. Was it remarkable for a pressure group like the Married Women's Association to be formed at this time? Didn't women's activism stop between the first and second waves? I asked historian Professor Katrina Beaumont. We're speaking in the British Library, so you'll be able to hear some background noise. So after 1918, you do have a change in the women's movement, but I would argue that change doesn't necessarily need to be perceived as a decline. So you have a number of post-suffrage societies continuing as pressure groups, so they have small numbers, and, and they did have some declining numbers, and again, that has mistakenly been perceived by historians as evidence of a decline, when actually you need to expand where you're looking for female activism. So if one restricts one's focus on female activism after the vote is won to, to these self-identifying small feminist pressure groups, then they are small, but they're still there. However, if you broaden your, um, your view and take in the whole much, kind of, much more interesting, much more eclectic range of women's organizations that were developing, um, which many historians now have done, it's acknowledged really that there was um, a, a mix of political, philanthropic, religious, voluntary, housewives, 
a whole range of different kind of women's organisations, many of which were campaigning actively for gender equality. So that completely changes how we view and see the women's movement and the development of the women's movement in the interwar years. And again, through the Second World War and into the post-war years. Professor Beaumont makes an important point. Maybe we don't know much about women's activism between the so-called first and second wave because we simply aren't looking in the right places. And if this is indeed the case, is it correct to talk about different waves of feminism at all? It does directly challenge the wave theory or metaphor of first wave, second wave feminism because there's very clear evidence now that there was continual female activism around gender equality right throughout the period, 1918 up to the late 1960s, when we have the emergence of women's liberation movement. And indeed, these more traditional forms of female activism continue alongside the women's liberation movement right up till today. So it's a, really a story of continuity and not these waves of, of, um, of great activity. This is important for our story. Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mistake is often considered as firing the starting pistol for second wave feminism highlighting the misery experienced by housewives trapped in never-ending domestic labour, prevented from using their talents out in the world. But the rights of housewives was actually an important concern for women's rights groups after the vote was won, and was closely connected to women's broader emancipation. One of the Married Women's Association's first protests showed the rights of housewives was a very important issue indeed. And that protest was against the policy of compensation for injuries during the Blitz in World War II. Here's Juanita Francis's words again, voiced by an actor. After the war had been going a year, I had a new baby and I had toddlers and I had to leave London because of the bombings. And I was worried about the Air Aid Injuries Act, which said that everyone was to be compensated if injured, <laughs> but not the housewife. But if she lost a leg or an arm or an eye, her husband could have an allowance to get a housekeeper. Juanita Francis is talking here about the personal injury schemes of 1939 and 1940, which compensated injuries sustained during air raid strikes, but only if the claimant was gainfully employed. And this excluded housewives. Which you see was such an outrage. I went to one or two conferences and pointed this out to them, that nobody had cottoned on to it. Except then I had to leave London, and I had to keep writing from London, and of course the bombing upset everybody. The association disappeared, I kept writings, telling them to hold committees, and, but when I came back to London a year later, <laughs> everyone was agog with this outrageous act, and the ministry said they would never give the housewife an allowance. Under this law, if a married woman were permanently disabled in an air raid, she would not be entitled to compensation. But her husband could claim enough to hire someone else to undertake her domestic labour. And so, under law, women's work within marriage was not work, unless the husband needed to replace it. He would be compensated for his incapacity to work outside the home, and he would be compensated for her incapacity to work inside the home. She would get nothing. The message was clear. She would work for free. What nonsense. But then all the organisations were agog and they had organised a meeting. This was combined organisations on the plinth of Trafalgar Square. On Trafalgar Square, women stood on one side, men on the other, displaying injuries with bandages, slings, splints and eye patches. Their slogan was, bombs show no sex bias. And they were somewhat successful. 
The scheme was subsequently amended to compensate war injury to housewives, albeit at a lower rate than men. What does this tell us about the women's movement at this time? And what about what the suffragettes did next after the vote was won? Well, let's hear again from historian Professor Katrina Beaumont. After the um, extension of the franchise to women over 30 in 1918, historical orthodoxies tend to view that the women's movement went into decline and that you had women going off who had been active in the suffrage movement now turning their attention to other campaigns, for example, the peace campaign or trade unionism or, or various other interests that they may have had. However, a number of referred to as post-suffrage societies continued um, and they realised that winning the vote was only one part of achieving gender equality and always had been so it's, it's always a bit of a mistake to think that the suffrage campaign was only about winning the parliamentary franchise it was about much more than that around equal moral standard equal pay and a whole kind of raft of um, legislation that could bring about greater gender equality. There's another reason why all of this is important the failure to value housework and childcare and marriage as this example of wartime compensation demonstrates, has created a bedrock of financial inequality that persists today. Both women and men in relationships now might not realise that if they make a well-considered decision to work part-time, or to give up work completely to care for children or even elderly parents, this can still deal a massive blow to the quality of their partnership. Just look at recent statistics from the OECD and ONS, as the Times reported in June 2022, about 28.5% of economically inactive women are not working in order to look after home or the family, compared with 6.9% of men. For the first time in at least 30 years, there's been a sustained increase in the number of women not working to look after family because of the cost of childcare. By taking yourself out of the workforce, you're potentially damaging your own earning potential or the pension you'd be getting in retirement. Realising this, as the Married Women's Association did all those years ago, was revolutionary then and should be remembered now. Valuing the work of carers in the family matters. It should not be invisible. As we'll see in this podcast, the Married Women's Association went on to have dramatic confrontations as it promoted this message. It brought the problems of marriage out of the dark and into the public sphere. It demanded legal recognition and compensation for married women's work in the home through a form of family law. This idea seemed ludicrous to some in the early years of the Married Women's Association. As the association's first president and Labour MP, Edith Summerskill asserted in 1939 in the House of Commons, The time must come, and I believe it will come in my lifetime, when this House will listen without laughter and the principle will be established that the married woman is earning her livelihood and is making a useful contribution to society inside her home and is in fact helping to earn the worker's wage just as much as he is outside the home. In the next episode, we'll find out more about Ada Summerskill, a prominent feminist and politician of her day. I'll also explore who else was in the Married Women's Association, including early female lawyers such as Helena Normanton and famous writers like Vera Britton and Dora Russell. Finding out more about these people is an important precursor to then learning about the association's members' clashes with lawmakers and, unfortunately, with each other.
Thank you for listening to Quiet Revolutionaries. Presented and written by me, Sharon Thompson. Produced by Ed Townend and with voice acting by Lynn Hoare. Special thanks to the Socio-Legal Studies Association for funding this project, the Women's Library, the National Archives, and all of the wonderful people who agreed to be interviewed about the Married Women's Association. For more information, visit marriedwomensassociation.co.uk, where you can find photos of the people mentioned in this podcast and documents from the archives. My book, Quiet Revolutionaries, which includes a foreword written by Lady Hale, is out now.